Hello, I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken-for-granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. I'm here with um, Alexis Harris today as part of the RPN interview project. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, the prompt questions that we've been asking all of our our scholars. So let's start with, um, first, thank you. (laughs) Um, And this is Vicky Lawson uh, talking with Alexis Harris. Uh, So what would you say, um, you know, in what I'm calling the sort of authoritarian moment in the U.S. or this attack on democracy moment in the U.S., in which our politics seem to have become so very explicitly um, anti-other, uh, with us clearly a strong uh, racial dimension to the way in which the other is is framed. I mean, not that that wasn't always true. I, I don't want to seem naive, but but there's a sort of strength to that um, explicitness of a racial project right now. Um, what in this moment? What what do you see as the priority topics for research on impoverishment, on inequality? I think the priority topics would would actually be more of a priority frame um, for us to think more about the intersectionality of institutions and how they lead to poverty, sustain po- poverty, reproduce poverty. And so thinking about the failure of institutions or educational systems yep. in impoverished communities right. um, and the types of teachers, uh, the skill sets that teachers have within those school systems, right. the structure for supporting youth who come from uh, impoverished families, um, programs that allow youth to be successful and be prepared and eligible to get into college. So the educational system is one institution. The criminal justice system would be another system that we we have to sort of include in our framework when we're understanding poverty, particularly the maintenance of poverty. So my research focuses on uh, monetary sanctions, the fines and fees that are assessed to individuals. But there's a whole realm of monetary sanctions that people face when they make contact with our systems of justice, not even serious crimes, superior court, but from traffic tickets and municipal uh, fines and fees um, that really inhibit individuals' abilities to be successful in life and moving forward with their life, even if they make a really bad mistake um, and pay their dues by going to jail, being on probation, they have this simply because of poverty, they have this permanent relationship with the criminal justice system. You know, 
the students in a class I taught on homelessness last quarter, mm. some of them were involved in doing interviews in Tent City, mm. and legal debt was one of the yeah. primary causes of being homeless mm-hmm. in our city. And I don't think we talk about this enough. Exactly. We don't. I became really interested in the issue of monetary sanctions because I saw it as a mechanism that's purposefully imposed by our criminal justice system. It's not a collateral consequence that many people in criminal justice study. It's not by accident. It's not social stigma. But it's this purposeful mechanism that our policymakers impose on people who are sentenced or make any type of contact. So some people have to pay these costs even without prosecution or conviction. So you have to pay for your public defender through the process of being adjudicated. Mm -hmm. You have to pay cash money bail if you want to get out. I mean, there's all of these roadblocks for people, and it really creates a two-tiered system of justice where people who have means can, you know, albeit they get convictions, they have the Mm -hmm. felony stigma, they face incarceration, but they don't have that that financial burden that poor people face. And And I... the majority of my work has focused on the criminal sanctions, the more severe punishment. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really important that we think about even traffic tickets, right. how traffic tickets can lead to um, revoking of driver's licenses, yep. which then inhibit people from getting to child care, from getting to work. Right. Um, so the educational system is one institution. The criminal justice system is another institution. Our employment system and how that works and how it does or does not provide um, what people need as employees in terms of health care, full health care benefits so that they can access. Which is the other primary cause of uh, being unstably right. housed right. is health debt. Right. right. And so we have to think about the cumulative nature of, of, right. of disadvantage in our society and how yeah. disproportionately yeah. people of color, people who are born into poverty, people who have disabilities, um, people have limited functioning mentally, yeah. Um, all of these sort of there's a, a growing population yeah. of individuals who face through different sort of contacts with different types of institutions face this cumulative disadvantage over their life course, which reinforces poverty. It replicates poverty for next generations, yeah. and it just sustains this unequal society. that you started with the word, word intersectional, mm. the intersectional analysis of institutional mm-hmm. barriers. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. That, that seems fundamental. Yes. Mm-hmm. And for us, the, the whole project of, around impoverishment is about intersections and the over-determination over of poverty. Yes. It isn't just an economic condition. It isn't even an economic condition, no. although that's the outcome. Yeah. It really comes from these intersections. And I think that's it's so overwhelming. I mean, even for a researcher, much less like a journalist or a policymaker, it's so overwhelming because there are so many dimensions that shape the way that people experience and live in poverty in yeah. the United States that we tend to focus in silos. We tend to just study the criminal yeah. justice and we tend to just study employment. income and employment. But it's how do we create a sustainable research agenda or sustainable right. policy right agenda to really address right. all of these components. Which is where I think the sort of networked work, where mm. we work in relation with each other, right. can be so vital. I don't think the institution really wants us to do that, but I think we should do it anyway, right? Right. Well, we have to. And if, if we really want to have real change, yep. right, we have to look at this sort of multidimensional components that yep. create and sustain poverty. 
Do you feel as though there is something different about the last two years? I mean, obviously there is politically, but in terms of our work, or is this a, merely a sort of intensified continuation? I, so the broader context, yes. I mean, there's definitely this negative. I mean, I so I tend to think in emotion. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's how I remember things. So I think emotionally, <laughs> it's been draining. It's been stressful and overwhelming and... Um, in some respects, debilitating to try yeah. and move forward in this environment, particularly around issues related to race and ethnicity, being a scholar yeah. of color. Um, yeah. You know, every day, every weekend, there's a new video of some atrocity around race and in yeah. a, inequality in our society. So trying to maintain <laughs> some semblance of... I don't know. I hate to use the word, but objectivity. Yeah. And this, as a teacher, as a researcher, right. is very difficult. Right. right. Um, as yeah. So there's that. Um, right. But I do think, given that, there's this even more forceful, and I tend to try and focus on that momentum for change. Right. Right. So I think, in the right. face of the frustration, there's there's something happening, particularly in the realm of criminal justice. Um, right. There is some momentum. We're trying to figure out sort of how do we direct this, yeah. how do we ride this, and how do we make real sustainable policy change. So that's a perfect segue because the next question is, you know, who should we be collaborating with right. in this moment? Uh-huh. Who who are our partners? And and again, it may not be different. It may be just doubling down on paying attention to the work that's going on right. that we can support and lift up. Right. I think, so this is my new thing the last year or two, is saying it takes all types, right? And so I think to get sustainable, real change in multiple arenas, it takes all types of people. So it takes academics. So we have to obviously be doing the, um, you know, theoretically informed empirical work, right? So we have evidence on what's happening and understand the mechanisms that sort of create the problems. And attack the war on evidence. Right, 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 right. And show that evidence matters and evidence is real. Right. Um, But I also think it takes... Uh, collaborations with people on the ground. So I think that we have to hear from people who are experiencing poverty. We have to hear from the different dimensions that led to them being in poverty and sustaining their poverty. Um, People who have been involved with the criminal justice system. Just understanding. So really it's working with. It's being in partnership. Because, you know, when you were talking about intersectionality, in a way, the very story that we will be told if we listen Mm -hmm. is that story. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, definitely. Right. Just like what you said about people having traffic tickets, having, you know, health situations. Boom. um, All of a sudden. Right. Right. So I think people on the ground, people, their experiences, and and listening to what they think uh, is needed for policy change and practice change on the ground. In your work, what does that teach you what right i think so i mean i was just at i was actually just at the national uh, national academies of science yep. on a on a for a workshop on social exclusion and inequality and it focused on the criminal justice system so that's hopeful that's definitely hopeful right is that it's people agenda are setting thinking about this exactly yep. and um and they were very purposeful in including people who had been involved with the criminal justice system and i think it reminded me one, it just reminds me of the raw emotion and... Oh, no. Good thing we checked. Okay, okay, good. We're still recording. <laughs> um, so having people at the table who have experienced poverty or experienced contact with the criminal justice system reminds me and others in the room of the sheer stripping of humanity that our society does. Yeah. And it yeah. sort of it gives you that energy to continue forward and that... Sort of, I, I say this frequently: is I don't have 
I don't have the luxury of sitting on the sidelines and yeah. not doing anything. So hearing people, hearing their stories and their experiences uh, remind me of that. Um, it also gives good insight into the, the multiple layers of barriers that um, inhibit them from being successful in yeah. their lives. Yeah. Um, so definitely having them, having advocates at the table as well, sort of figuring out where policy, you know, where we, we have the law, but then we have policy and practice on the yeah. ground. And so where there's, how the policy can be changed and manipulated in certain ways yeah. that does a disservice to people on yeah. the ground. Yeah. So, um, Are there people still listening on the right. policy front? Are there? Oh, do you I know think what so. I mean? Oh, goodness, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was actually, and so last week was a little hectic. I was at, was this, or maybe it was two weeks ago. So and, I was, and, and why is it your time? <laughs> I know, exactly. So I was, so the first part of the week I was in D.C. at the National Academies of Science, yeah. and then I was at Yale Law School for a wow. conference. And it was um, policymakers from uh, presiding justice of the Texas State Supreme Court wow. uh, to, on my panel, was the governor of Connecticut. God, that's awesome. Um, and so it was really interesting conversation about contemporary use of fines and fees. Now, many people said that they think that they're addressing these issues, uh, inequalities in general in the criminal justice system. And um, But I was pleasantly surprised with the governor who oh, wow. actually said, you know, on the record, after I spoke about fines and fees, that he said that if, if a system, uh, regardless of the intent of the policy, if the system produces ra racial disproportionality or disparities and you stand behind that system, you are a racist. Bingo. And so we need people like that. So wow. there are different people. Yep. There's, you know, yep. the prosecutor Krasner. I mean, there's different people around the nation that are being elected or that are feeling this moment that they have to use their privilege and, and their power to say something. I, it's very powerful to me that you point to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, we need to be talking to people who are experiencing this mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis, mm -hmm. but we also have to pull the levers of power, right? right. It, it, again, it takes all types. That's yeah. my sort of thing these days, yeah. is that we have, everyone has know, to lean in, right? They have yeah. to get dirty. They yeah. have to say the truth. They have, they to, be have brave. to do the work. They have to be brave. Yeah. Maybe not be dirty. <laughs> Maybe but both. But they have to get their hands dirty, roll up their yes. sleeves, and do the and, work. And take some responsibility. Right. Because right. so often these problems are a problem of the other, and right. in the way this stuff gets framed in the public discourse. And, and that is not the case. When I talk with judges or I talk with prosecutors, it's always somebody else in some no. other county no. or in some other state. And everyone has to look at what they're doing. Yep. And, and that's where it comes to the evidence. The empirical evidence has to be shows there. what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Practitioners and policymakers look at what's happening. Yeah. I think one problem too is that we don't. While we're we're working in silos, we're also not looking downstream. So we don't have a comprehensive analysis yeah. of what happens when someone goes to kindergarten right. to college. Right? What are the barriers along the way? And, and for the sort of classical middle class decision maker, you know, a hundred dollars doesn't seem like a big deal. Right. Right. right? And so, right. how is that the problem? Right. And I think that that is a big reason why it took, you know, until now, yeah. uh, there's 30, 40 years now, 43 years of mass conviction and incarceration, the last 20 of which we've expanded the types of fines and fees yeah. in terms of the types and the amounts. But researchers didn't look at it all on. together no, and then look at it as a whole, and right? They look at it as a whole. Oh, but okay. I also, I mean, I sat in 90s and doing my dissertation work in juvenile courts and I heard fines and fees. But, you know, my middle class orientation, 100, 150, I didn't think about exactly. how that would impact individuals. Right. So I think that partly who we are as researchers too impacts the questions that we think are powerful. Which is why the collaborations are so important. Important right? to talk with people. Once we started doing it's interviews like, oh, with individuals, shit. they were saying, you know, look, I'm making a decision. I'm, I have full, I have HIV or a full-blown AIDS and I'm making a decision of paying for prescriptions or paying my LFOs. I'm making a decision of taking a shower at the downtown right. shower facility 
or paying my LFO. So yeah. really thinking about the decisions that people yeah. make um, on like, the ground level is so important. It, again, it's intersectionality. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I love that um, the sort of the complexities of intersectionality are are a big theme in what we're talking about and the ways in which it isn't simply that researchers need to listen to people who are subjected to fines, but researchers need to explore their own positionality and how they've even thought about the question of fines. Definitely, definitely. And and not just fines, everything around poverty. Yeah. Um, And policy, I mean, and I think that because we can gain that insight from people on the ground by doing observational or interview work right. or working in collaboration, we can also help inform policymakers. Right. Because I've had some policymakers say very crass things um, when I make presentations on my research mm-hmm. findings about assumptions of individuals and you know assuming people make choices to buy steaks rather than yep. diapers or yep. you know just yep. saying openly crass things, openly um, inaccurately crass. Right. Exactly. That they're just so misinformed. Right. Do you notice in this? I mean, I've been thinking about as a feminist researcher that was really interested in attacking masculinism and sort of objective science. Um, I feel like this has come full circle to now we have the ultimate postmodern president mm-hmm. where truth is not, truth is what you think right. and truth is what you assert and truth mm-hmm. is what you say. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder what you think about the relationship between evidence and discourse mm-hmm. and the ways in which people get framed through a cultural politics of the other um, and, and sort of how to challenge that through the work that you do. I mean, I think that, you know, so I, I don't have the, the answer for that. I mean, I think it, it's frustrating. Uh, so I'm, my mind is going in a couple of different Yeah, it's here. a lot. I know. One, I think that, you know, having people speak is powerful themselves. So using qualitative work interviews, but also right. if, you know, if I have the opportunity to be on a panel, I want to say, look, I want someone who has faced fines and fees on that panel themselves. That's great. Because their experience is much more powerful yeah. than anything that I can bring in their evidence and how can somebody refute their experience. Yep. That said, yeah. is that people do. I mean, it, it's... That's a kind of dismissal. People, an example, and sort of this is what my head wants to say, is that people in the African-American community for years talk about uh, disparities and racism and discrimination, but many times it goes unheard uh, mm-hmm. until it's captured on video and validated through white people's eyes. Or white people experience or something. Or white people experience it and say, you know, I think, I mean, this more recent thing in this weekend with the two African-American men at the Starbucks who are arrested, uh, supp- were who arrested for basically sitting there and not Waiting for a friend. Waiting for a friend. I think one thing that captured the imagination of individuals was their white friend who was arguing with the police by yep. saying they're not Who's doing on the video. And I think that um, I think that people could sympathize, yeah. white people could sympathize with that white man yeah. and not understanding yeah. what was happening. I think it also showed that white yeah. people can have a different layer of discourse with police. If, if a black person did that, it would have gone would have escalated. escalated the yeah. situation. Um, so I think yeah. that. So I think yes, we need to have people at the table if we're talking about race and discrimination, if we're talking about poverty, if we're talking about criminal justice experiences. But at the same time, I don't know how to combat um, the delegitimation right. of what 
people say sometimes. I, it's frustrating. And yeah. even as a scholar of color, I've yeah. been in circumstances where I've been asked, in fact, I've been paid to come and do a lecture on certain issues. And people in power, judges, white judges, um, have pushed back very hard and are frustrated that I'm speaking to them. And in fact, I was paid in private to speak to them about my research. So it's, it's, I don't yep. know, I can, I, I know how to handle myself. Oh, I know yeah, how yeah, to yeah. show the empirical data, but I don't know how to break that wall down. Yeah. I yeah. think that's where um, people with power and privilege need to step in and, yeah. um, and be a strong voice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe in a way we might have already answered this question, but what, what do you see as the priority actions we should be taking to resist these exclusionary trends? I think we were drifting in that direction. Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily only mean as researchers, um, maybe as teachers or maybe as community-engaged people. Again, I think it's all angles. I mean, I think that yeah. as researchers, definitely um, taking our, our work one step further and translating it for public use. And if it's giving quotes doing. in media... And you do that a lot. Doing, and I, I do because I think it's so important. Yeah. And I, I really do believe that, again, this, I, you know, I always say that I'm a bit naive through life in, in, in understanding how the world works. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always just... The true reason I became academic was because I thought that our policymakers just didn't have good evidence that they needed more information. I mean, that truly, which is partly true, <laughs> truly right. But I think yeah, it's a little bit more than that. Um, and and I still believe that much of what is being done in the names of voters and citizens in the society, we don't know what's happening. Yeah. So I truly believe that if more people know about what's happening yeah. with our criminal justice system and the inequalities that are happening, that they would create more momentum. So I think yeah. that we do. So that's why I do what I do. And you've written a book on this recently as well. Talk a little bit about, for the people that will hear this, oh, okay. sort of where they go to find the evidence. Right. Well, so on, uh, in regards to monetary sanctions, I have a book, A Pound of Flesh, Monetary Sanctions as a Punishment for the Poor. Yep. Yep. Um, and that in the book, I look, I use Washington State as a case study, but I also situate it within a review of 50 state statutes, sort of showing right. that Washington is an anomaly, that the practice of imposing fines and fees on individuals is a national phenomenon. Yep. Um, and, and talk about the consequences and sort of how it happens and how people can be reincarcerated for n their sole inability to make payments. And you show up for public, I mean, I saw you talk at Real Change News. I've seen you talk, you know, in public venues. You've been to the White House. I mean, you seem to me to be the kind of scholar that has made it part of your work to circulate in a whole lot of different spaces. Is that yeah. fair? No, I know you aren't going to self-promote, but I'll, I'll do it for you. But, <laughs> but there's a strategy there, right? That, mm. You know, I'd like to say that there's a strategy, um, but in reality, it's more of a passion. I think that, again, I, I don't have the luxury of sitting yeah. on campus and yeah. not doing anything. I feel yeah. because of being a black woman, mm -hmm. because of having a black son and a black husband mm -hmm. and a black daughter... Um, I don't, I can't just sit by because right. it could be any one of us. My husband and I have conversations about where the um, the car registration is. Um, so he doesn't have to reach across the seat <sighs> into the glove compartment box yep. if he gets stopped. You know, we ha we've we had conversations with our kids. If we get pulled over, that you put your hands on your lap, you don't touch anything. 
that's real so fear. Powerful. So I don't have the luxury not to yep. engage with the media. And so yep. when I do get the opportunity to speak, I, I do that. Yeah. Um, I think that there was really good momentum with the Obama's Department of Justice there in was. 2014, 2015. And yeah. I think that they really cared about um, social justice and inequality and making sure we had a system that worked for everyone. Right. So I, I did take advantage of those relationships and working with them. Yeah. Um, are, those, are, are any of those folks still there? Or is it transformed completely? I think mo most of them have left. Okay. And most of them are in really good spaces. And I continue to work with them there you in go. different places. Right. Um, right. Right. And so that's neat. Yeah. Um, but I see you working across um, a whole range of different sorts of spaces. So the policy space, the judicial space, the community space, the educational space. Because yeah, I think it takes all types. We yeah. all have to be educated. We all yeah. have to have conversations with each other. You're doing the intersectional work you started with. Uh, yeah, I guess. Right. I mean, it's kind of neat that you say this because I didn't think about it that way. But it but is, I think isn't that it? You're right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, a lot of it's happenstance, but it's it, the opportunities have been presented, and I think it's needed. Um, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, I you, think. Yeah. You model the kind of uh, of, of scholar, researcher, educator that that we need so many more of. Well, and I also think that I've been fortunate because this university allows me to. Yeah. I mean, think from the president yeah, down to my chair. You um, have support. I've always had support yeah. for speaking out, translating my work. Um, you know, I've gotten pushback before from citizens that have seen me mm -hmm. speak and contact mm -hmm. the chair and the dean. And I remember my dean said, you're an individual and you have the right to, you're a citizen and yeah. you have the right to speak your mind. So yeah. I've always felt safe in doing that, even from being an assistant. That is crucial. That is very, right? Yeah. Because otherwise yeah. I would, if in that one moment, this was like my second year tenure track, had my associate dean not told, you know, told me to, you know, chill out and not mm -hmm. speak publicly and engage, then that might have changed the tra trajectory of your of career. Public, yeah, yeah, engagement, yeah, yeah. So I think I think I. So we can do that as researchers and translating our work. I think as teachers, we have, you know, a powerful role. Yes. And again, not I tell the students I don't. I mean, I do, <laughs> but I tell yeah. them I yeah. don't care what you think necessarily. Yeah. Right. I just care that you use real evidence. Exactly. And that you're critical. And that you that are open to hearing things. and learning. Right. Right. And I think that's you know, and and that maybe you care about these issues and you could care about thinking about them in different ways. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of pre med students, and now they think about ways in which they can engage with you yeah. know poverty and mm -hmm. and so I think that's a neat um, privilege that we have yeah. is to help shape the next or the current generation yep. in thinking about these problems as yep. well. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. My last question is this keywords question. And here, uh, where's this coming from? It's coming from the idea that there are certain kinds of, maybe keywords is too narrow, but there are certain kinds of ideas or narratives that drive the public imagination. Mm -hmm. So uh, in my own work around poverty and sort of middle-class poverty politics, I've been fascinated by, even amongst people who would consider themselves liberal living in Seattle, mm -hmm. there's this persistent narrative that you know, the poor bring it on themselves, mm -hmm. that it's a question of choice, that they are in ways shameful and disgusting and sort of a horror with the other, mm -hmm. particularly the poor other, um, even hatred. Mm -hmm. um, and so thinking about the, I'm, I'm curious whether you, from where you sit and the work that you do, you see other sorts of narratives around um, who is poor, why they're poor, 
why why the status quo is not challenged? Mm-hmm. You know, what are the narratives? Is it that criminals deserve it? You know, what what are the sorts of narratives that allow us to not see, allow us to not interrogate, that allow people to feel okay mm-hmm. about not engaging critically? I think those are the kinds of things I'm wondering about. I think um, particularly in regards to this, our systems of justice, I think there's two things. I think one is that we... Um, we have this notion that we have to hold people accountable. Yes. And we haven't, as a society, had a contemporary conversation about what that means. Yeah. Um, but that we still use it. Practition, policymakers That's interesting. shape their policy in that regard. And practitioners, judges, and prosecutors, and other people who work within the system still have this notion of accountability. And so it's this vague idea. Right. But it's used to enforce different types multiple layers of punishments on people. And so people, you know, who are convicted in their superior courts, they have incarceration, they have community service, they have community probation, they have drug and alcohol assessment and treatment, they have victim panel classes, um, they have uh, regular mm-hmm. tests that they have mm-hmm. to do with bodily fluids. Mm-hmm. So yes. there's this host of a punishment pie, that I call it, <laughs> and it's all in the name of accountability. Yeah. And in, in addition to that, we have fines and fees. And so yeah. when can people be held accountable? And what do we mean by accountable? What does it mean to hold somebody accountable if they're poor yeah. and we have work standards for them? Um, yeah. What does accountability really look like? What's fascinating about that, that's really interesting because what it presumes is that there's an underlying fairness, mm. that somehow the starting point for any quote-unquote individual is the same, right. and therefore the standards of accountability must be the same. Right. right? And I mean, so that's what I always use as a visual in my class, I think I actually am presenting it today, uh, is a track, right? And it's very simplistic way of thinking about the way the world works is who gets born on the inside track, right? Yeah. I've learned as you walking on a track, it's a lot shorter and easier to walk on the inside than it is on the outside, right? So who gets born on the inside right. and who gets born on the outside? And what additional hurdles are put on yeah. that outside track? If yeah. you're born in poverty, yeah. if you're born as a racialized minority, or if you're born undocumented or as an immigrant, right. what are the different hurdles that are put in your way on that outside track? Which then already means that any standard measure of accountability is already inherently unfair. unfair, right? And I think the other, uh, the other sort of keyword is, is uh, humanity. Is yeah. that we've lost a sense. I think it's yes. so easy for us to dehumanize um, people who have contact with the criminal justice system, people who are even poor. Yes. We take their people who are homeless. We take their humanity, humanity away, and we assume that living on a sidewalk is the norm and they're comfortable with that. They've chosen that. Right. And and sort of these assumptions is that once we look at someone as inhumane, we it removes all all of the standards that we would expect for ourselves or our children. Yep. Um, and so, and, and we do that across racial lines as well. So we do that yeah. with people who are undocumented. We do that with people who are a different racial or ethnic group than us or, you know, sexual orientation yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, we take their humanity away. Yeah. And so I think we and need to... And then that opens the door to all of the rest of rest the violence. Of, right. Done to people. And that is violence, it right? Is. All of this is violence yeah. that's being done. And I don't think we talk about that. I mean, that's the third, <laughs> right? Absolutely. All of that is, is violence. Give what me we chills. do to the criminal justice system, what we do to poor children, what mm-hmm. we do to homeless people, what we do to people in the LGBTQ yeah. community. It's all violence. Exactly. I mean, I feel like violence is, is fundamental. The the willingness to allow violence to persist mm-hmm. in all of its forms and to normalize it mm-hmm. as not actually violent. Right, right, right. right. Oh, I think I'm thinking more and more about violence. As, thank you. Right.
Oh, well, you're welcome. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk and reflect. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Um,